alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Podcast, Paul and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 34th episode of Podcast. In this episode, we will tell you what is important in studying history, part two of the interview with an American historian doing research on Poland, how the Polish language expresses closeness and what is the function of Bruderschaft, and how an animal psychologist can help in a court of law and in protecting animal welfare. Can you introduce yourself, please? I am John, John Bushel. Karolina Lutoslowski is my wife. We're very good friends. We've known each other, I would think, uh, more than 10 years now. From your perspective, was it different about Polish people? Well, this may, this may come as a surprise, <clears throat> but a lot, of, a lot of what Polish people and, and my background are... As, you know, your world's apart, but there are a lot of things that are very, very similar. I don't eat meat, but in, in my culture, meat is a big thing. You know, people love to eat meat. Uh, I'll give you, I always remember when I had first met Carolina, I took her to a, a Caribbean restaurant, Trinidad background. And while we were at the restaurant, they were preparing some dishes and she's we were looking at a menu and she was asked she asked me what is this stuff sauce and i go it's pig feet that are pickled and she goes pick pick pickled pig feet she goes you gotta be joking she says we do the same thing we eat the same thing so she goes order that for me <laughs> and then there was, you know, you guys have kerbasa, and this is like, uh, there was something on the menu we call black pudding. But it's not, a lot of times when people hear pudding, they think of a cake, but it's not what it is. It's a type of kerbasa uh, made with bread, and I think it's with uh, blood. So she said, we have the same, we call it something different, but it's the same. So... A lot of the dishes, a lot of different types of food, very similar. Polish people love to drink. People from the islands love to drink as well. They love to party, have a good time. Same with Polish people, I find. They love to party and have a good time. So, to, for me, this is, I guess, why I, I, I just feel... Comfortable, I feel at home because a lot of a lot of the similarities there, those similarities that I have 
when I when I meet Polish people when I've been to Poland compared to back home, back in the islands. I think Polish people are like island people. They're, they they my experiences are they they are warm. In our last episode, we talked to Professor Lori Koloski, a historian specializing in the history of Poland at William and Mary University in Williamsburg, Virginia. Her life changed its course as a result of the years she spent in Poland. She came to Poland with her father, Professor Bernard Koloski, a Fulbright professor of American literature, in 1981 and stayed for five years. In part one of the interview, she talked about her feelings for Poland and what it was like to be there. Today, in part two, she talks about the history of Poland. We reach Lori Koloski in Virginia. She came back and you decided that your whole, your whole academic career is going to be devoted to that. You know, I am constantly talking to my students about contingency and the role that contingency plays in history. You know, what historians mean when we talk about contingency is the unplanned, the unpredictable, and how much of an impact things that are unplanned and unpredictable can have on the way history plays out. I mean, that's absolutely integral to to the way we study history, but it's also integral to my own particular history. You know, I also try to encourage students not to plan everything out in advance. You get so worked up about, you know, whether their career plans are going to work out as they want, and they're thinking 10, 20 years down the road, and I always try to encourage them to to be a little bit more open to contingency because things happen in ways that you can't predict and you can't expect. And if you're open to that, wonderful things can happen. Terrible things can happen too, of course. And we'll see what happens based on our latest contingency here in American politics. So I can't say that I kind of came back from Poland and I planned to have an academic career in Polish history. I knew that I wanted to study Eastern Europe and learn more about it in a kind of more formal sense and be able to set my own experiences into a sort of broader, what I would call now scholarly context, although I don't know that I thought of it in those terms at the time. And I did that at Michigan. I had a wonderful time. And I had wonderful, wonderful professors, particularly in political science, Alfred Meyer and Zvi Gittleman. I applied to go to do master's programs. I got a scholarship to go to Yale and do a, a master's in Russian and East European studies. And so that's what I did. And I got to Yale and I took a, a course with a wonderful professor named Susan Woodward, who was a specialist on the Balkans. And I loved the professor and I hated the political science methodology. I, I just didn't kind of conform with who I am and the way I think it. So even though I loved the professor, I decided, okay, well, political science is probably not to me. And then I took a wonderful history course with Piotr Wandich, specialist in Polish history, and Ivo Banats, a professor in Balkan history, and loved the course, loved the course. To this day, I can remember, I mean, as if it were yesterday, the way Ivo Banats would laugh during class. He has this gigantic belly laugh. And Piotr Wandich was just so eloquent and erudite and elegant. So... You know, I kind of shifted my energy toward history while I was at Yale, doing this two-year master's. So I applied for PhD programs, and I got money to go study, and I chose to go study at Stanford and had a wonderful experience in Stanford. And then I got a job at William and Mary, and here I am. So <laughs> here I am 18 years later, right? I got my job here in William and Mary in 1989. 
you know, it's true. I have a career in Polish history. Well, in European history. I mean, I, I teach on uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th century Europe. I teach courses on post-1945 Europe. Uh, I teach courses on global history. I teach courses on historical interpretation, nation, nationalism, nations and nationalism. You know, I don't teach only on Poland, but that is my research interest. And I'm actually thrilled to be teaching a course on Poland in particular, on modern Poland in particular this coming spring, which I'll be doing for the first time since 2001. And I feel incredibly lucky to be where I am and doing what I'm doing. Do you, do you go to Poland a lot? Uh, you know, I try to get there as often as I can. And I've actually been twice in the past six months. I spent the month of June there. Uh, working on a research project. And then I was back in September for just a few days, actually, as a um, Smithsonian expert with a Smithsonian Journeys tour of, of uh, 23. There were 23 people. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I mean, I'd never done that kind of um, group tour with people. But they were absolutely wonderful. I mean, the Smithsonian people were wonderful, and the people on the tour was were absolutely wonderful. And the tour director, who was a young Polish woman uh, from Krakow, absolutely fabulous. So they were students of a new kind in a sense, you know, and I was as much a student as anyone else on the trip. So I try to get there as often as I can. I, I used to go every year without fail. Uh, and then I had an administrative position here at William and Mary for four years that about killed me and kept me from going to Poland for four years. And now I'd say I get there every year or two, um, but I'm back to trying to go at least every year. And in, in an ideal life, when I win the lottery, I will live there half time. In Krakow? Yeah, I think probably in Krakow. Probably more than anywhere I've ever lived, with the possible exception of Northern California. Um, Krakow feels like a hometown. It really does. I love it. How has Poland changed? People, you know, the country. That's a good question. That's a complicated question. And I suspect the answer would change enormously depending on where you are and who you talk to. I think for me, since I've been going back to Krakow for years and years and years... I mean, in some ways, the city itself, the physical look of the city, is emblematic of sort of broader changes. I mean, on one level, on the surface, Krakow doesn't look that different from the way it did in 1980 or 1920, for that matter. You know, it's a very interesting combination of a medieval city with a late 19th century redo. But if you dig a little bit deeper, it's changed in, you know... In incredibly sort of profound ways that I think now people sort of take for granted. You know, one of the things I love about Krakow is that it is both provincial and cosmopolitan. There's a very keen sense of local identity, I think, for many people who live there, but also a very strong sense that Krakow is part of a bigger cultural and historical swath of Europe, right? That it's very much a, a European place. It's very much emblematic of a European sensibility. You know, I mean, I don't think it's as simple as West versus East. I don't think, I mean, it's more central than anything else, um, but it's certainly more West-leaning than East-leaning. I mean, you know, on a day-to-day -day level, life is so much easier, not just because of post-communist shifts in, in the economic realm, which I think have been humongous, huge. I mean, you still go to the to the farmer's market at Novi Klepaj, and you see the little ladies coming in from the from the villages with their cheese, you know, they're still there, which is actually really nice. Um, but you also know that you can go to the 24-hour grocery and get a piece of cheese wrapped in, you know, shrink-wrapped in plastic that will last you for the next three months in your refrigerator if you don't open it. And so, yes, it's completely the same, but it's also completely different. Are Poles obsessed with Poland? I think that 
the people that I know have been less obsessed with Poland over the past 15 years. And that's why it's surprising that this sudden shift toward a kind of ideological and political perspective that stresses Poland's exceptionalism is surprising to me. I'm surprised that people have kind of bought into that. I'm giving a talk later this afternoon to a group of students who are being inducted into the History Honor Society here at William & Mary. It's a National Honor Society, Phi Alpha Theta. And one of the things I'm talking about is how history teaches us humility and teaches us that when we consider our own lives and look at other people's lives and other places and other times, it reminds us that, yes, we're all unique, but we're also not exceptional. There's a difference between being unique and being exceptional. And I think one of the most dangerous things about populism is the insistence on exceptionalism in looking at one's own past and in kind of thinking ahead to the future. That we are so exceptional, we have to set ourselves apart and we have to make sure that we protect what's ours before we attend to anybody else. And I just think that's incredibly dangerous. We've seen how it's dangerous. I mean, there's plenty of examples, right, in the past that we've seen. And I don't believe history repeats itself. I don't. I think that doesn't make any sense. The context in which history plays out and the contingencies that play a role in history are so profound that history never repeats itself. But certain propensities or certain views or certain assumptions can be very useful over and over and over again, right? And it's no um, surprise that populist political activists kind of mobilize that sense that, well, we have to protect ourselves first, and we have to make sure that when we go back and look at our past, we tell a, a story of ourselves as exceptional, whether as victims or as heroes or whatever. So I find it kind of surprising that, you know, after a period of a couple decades where it seemed to me that the people I know in Poland have settled into what I think is a very sort of, I'm going to use the word healthy, although I'm not sure that's the right word, but a very sort of open-minded and kind of broad thinking, broad-minded way of thinking of themselves as part, and yes, we are a unique collective with a unique history, but we're also part of this bigger sort of phenomenon of being European, of being Central European, of being human. I think that's been a wonderful thing to see. Uh, and it's a little bit troubling to me to see so many of my broad-thinking friends kind of suddenly say, well, actually, no, we need to go back to this sort of earlier, much narrower, much more exclusive, and frankly, much meaner-spirited way of putting ourselves first, whether that that's whether it's about the way we tell the story of our past or the way we think about our future. Do you, do you think that happens in academia as well? Uh, yes, I do. I do. I mean, I think, you know, to some extent, academics both reflect and help drive shifts in the broader culture. I don't know how much they help drive it. I don't think academics are actually very influential. <laughs> also think that based on what I see around me at this particular academy, I think, you know, I think one of the most important things historians can do with students is help them stay attuned to that sort of humility that comes from the deeper study of whatever it is, politics today, societies in the past, whatever it is that we sort of dig down into. We learn more about not just that particular thing, but about ourselves within a broader sort of world and a broader chronological or geographical space within this sort of broader context. I think one of the most important things that people need to do and that people haven't done enough of in the recent past, and I'm thinking about elections in Poland and in the United States, is pay attention to what people are saying 
You need to ask for proof of what they're saying. You need to think about the broader context of what they're saying. You need to think about the assumptions that drive what people are saying and doing. You know, I don't think that um, historians are going to save the world necessarily, but I do think that there's something to be said for the study of history. And it's not because history predicts the future. It doesn't. They can't. Economists and political scientists have proved that again and again and again. Um, and I think they should stop trying. But that's another story for another day. It's not that historians can predict the future. We can't. But we can help shed light on some of the ways in which the study of the past helps us think more broadly about the wisdom of the various options we might have in the present. As always, we encourage you to visit our website, mypolcast.com, where you can find more information and leave your comments. When you speak Polish, you have to do a lot of linguistic gymnastics. Not only do you have to constantly worry about endings of all worlds, nouns, adjectives, verbs, etc., unless you are a native speaker of Polish and it comes naturally, but you also have to make some serious decisions. For example, you have to decide in what relationship you are with your interlocutor. If you know the person well, you address him or her with the pronoun ty. If not, there are two different forms depending on whether it's a woman or a man. Speaking to a woman, you would address her with pani and to a man with pan. The trouble is that this choice affects much more. All the pronouns and verbs, for example... Zostaniesz, a ja pojadę twoim samochodem. Pan zostanie, a ja pojadę pana samochodem. Pani zostanie, a ja pojadę pani samochodem. It's really hard to be neutral. I remember once talking to a woman on the phone. I couldn't remember if we were on the first name terms, ty or not, pani. I was really doing my best to avoid any forms, and believe me, it was a great effort. This distinction is similar, but not identical, to the French distinction between tu and vous. So much changes with the transition from the formal to the informal, not just linguistically, that the actual moment of transition is often marked by a special ceremony called Bruderschaft, from the German Bruderschaft, meaning brotherhood. One person, typically an older person or a woman, suggests, let's drink Bruderschaft, wypijmy Bruderschaft. Never refuse, it's very rude. We drink Bruderschaft by having a drink, usually a shot of vodka each, simultaneously with arms interlocked. Then there is a handshake, an exchange of kisses, and a symbolic introduction. Move me Ivona. Call me Ivona. There is also a semi-formal form of address. Pan or pani plus first name. For example, panie Marku or pani Evo. Poles hardly ever use pan and pani with the last name. Although I must say that I hear it more frequently now than in the past. Poles who come to an English-speaking country or who were born in one where there is just one form of address, pronoun you, often copy the same in Polish, addressing everyone with ty in Polish. This really sounds inappropriate when a much younger person or a child addresses an older person in this way.
In our previous episode, we spoke to Dorota Wieland, an animal psychologist and animal rights activist based in Poland, a consultant to the Parliamentary Group of Animals Friends. In part one of the interview, we spoke about humans and wild animals. Dorota Wieland is also a court expert on animal psychology and is working on a PhD on pathological behaviors in animals, including captive wild animals in circuses. This is the subject of the second part of our interview. We reached Dorota Wieland in Warsaw. You, you mentioned that you're a court specialist or expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, some time ago, uh, I was asked by an official, well, what does an animal psychologist do in, in the court? And I said, well, what does a human psychologist do in a court? So, well, he, he, he talks to the patients, he finds out, and I said, well, that's exactly what I'm doing. I talk to animals and I try to translate uh, animal language into human language and backwards. Can you just give us a few interesting uh, examples of kind of cases in which you participated? The case that I'm working on right now is uh, the case uh, which happened in the, uh, in Zakopane, which is in the in the mountains, in the Tatra Mountains. In one of the main streets of Zakopane, there was a horse carriage. And there are lots of cars and lots of people there. And all of a sudden, that horse was afraid and he, he just went wild and started to run with the carriage uh, behind him. And his owners also uh, trying to, to stop him and to tame him. And there was a very serious accident. As a, as a result, the horse owner uh, died and another uh, person was uh, seriously um, injured. The job of the court expert is um, to answer the prosecutor's questions, one of them being what was the reason why the horse went wild? Was there any fault from humans and why it happened? This is the, the, the kind of questions that I'm, I'm expected to, uh, to answer. Uh, in this particular case, the uh, underlying reason for the accident and what happened next was the fact that uh, horses should not be used to, uh, to pull carriages in traffic. It's very difficult to really be 100% sure what the reaction of a horse will be. So the, something may always happen that the horse uh, can, uh, can go wild. Um, You are working on your PhD, which uh, has to do with the psychology of uh, animals um, that were used in circus entertainment. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because it's very interesting, right? You're not working on animals in captivity, which is probably more common. I have to say that in Poland, unfortunately, uh, animals are still used for entertainment in circuses. And uh, you said that it's not animals in captivity. Yes, they are in captivity, but this is a, a totally different captivity than you find in zoos, for example, because from the very from the very nature of a circus, uh, the owners and of the of the animals cannot provide them the, the right conditions to to live. Starting from these from this deprivation, these animals have tendencies to develop very serious psychological problems, mental problems, because animals do develop uh, mental problems and mental diseases the same way that humans do. 
And uh, animals that are used in, in circuses are prone to serious mental problems, starting from apathy and, uh, and depression and ending with going wild and, um, and attacking people. Is, is there any way that your research can lead to a particular specific changes in, in the legal system that would ban that kind of practice? Animal protection organizations in Poland, this movement is, is very strong uh, nowadays and animal protection organizations uh, are pressing uh, the authorities to ban using animals in circuses. Uh, of course, there are also very strong objections from the from the other side, and they try to explain that nothing is going wrong, that uh, the animals are, are well treated, and that their welfare is being maintained. But from the animal psychology point of view, there is no way that circus can uh, provide the right conditions uh, to, to to fulfill the animal welfare requirements. There is not much uh, scientific evidence in this case because most of the materials and films and, and articles that were prepared uh, by uh, animal protection or, or animal rights uh, activists, but there is no comprehensive and uh, scientific-based uh, literature on, on this. And I think that such work will, uh, will help uh, as an argument for banning animals. Well, using animals for entertainment is a much broader theme, actually, than, than just circuses. If you look at the short films that are shown on, on Facebook, for example, or on the internet in general, and people laugh about animals being dressed in cute uh, dresses, uh, this is something that we do. I mean, we humans, are, we are animals, but we are rather nasty animals. We like to, uh, to, to laugh and make fun of um, other species. And it is not so long ago that uh, we were laughing at uh, deformed, uh, disabled people, anything that is, uh, that is different from, uh, from us. And the same thing we are, we are doing right now about animals. And I hope that uh, since it's changed, it will come uh, the time that we'll not, we'll not be making fun of, of animals and treat them in... Uh, in a way that uh, deprives them of uh, dignity. I think that animals do have dignity the same way uh, that we do, although they are not aware of the fact. As always, we encourage you to visit our website, mypolcast.com, where you can find more information and leave your comments. This was something that all Poles were talking about. Imagine an American star singing in Polish. Bobby Vinton sang My Melody of Love with parts of the song in Polish in 1974, when Poland was behind the Iron Curtain and not much of its culture or language found its way to the West. Billboard magazine called Bobby Vinton the all-time most successful love singer of the rock era. From 1962 through 1972, Vinton had more Billboard number one hits than any other male vocalist, including Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Stanley 
Robert Bobby Vinton Jr., born in 1935, is an American singer and songwriter, the only child of locally popular band leader Stan Vinton and Dorothy Stujinski. He is of Polish and Lithuanian descent. The family surname was originally Vintula, but it was changed by Vinton's father. Vinton's parents encouraged their son's interest in music by giving him his daily 25 cents for practicing the clarinet. Dick Lawrence, a popular disc jockey in Pittsburgh, was impressed by Vinton's voice and made some demo tapes of the singer's work. Eventually, the tapes made their way to CBS Records and Vinton was offered a contract with the company's Epic label in 1960. Vinton was managed in his early career by Alan Klein, who later was the manager of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. In pop music circles, he became known as the Polish Prince, as his music paid tributes to his Polish heritage. Some of his most popular songs, like My Melody of Love, a real hit in both the US and in Canada, and Roses Are Red were translated from Polish and rearranged for American market. The town of Cannonsburg had plans to erect a statue in Vinton's honor, but the singer himself vetoed the idea, saying that the $100,000 planned cost should be spent on things more useful to the inhabitants of his native town. You've been listening to the 34th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by... Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions, also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with Bobby Winton, the melody of love, so you can enjoy both English and Polish lyrics of this hit from a few years ago. Thank you for listening to Polcast. I'm looking for a place to go So I can be all alone From thoughts and memories So that when the music plays I don't go back to the days When love was you and me
Wish I had a place to hide All my sorrow, all my pride I just can't get along Cause the love, one so fine Keeps on hurting all the time Where did I go wrong? 